Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome. Um, if you're just listening to the podcast, you've you've missed out. Rabbi Schatz has a new title, but you need to be on the Zoom. Right? So that is um, not true. Rabbi Schatz has not has no new title. Rabbi Schatz has a very exciting new title. No. No. But we are going to no. start class with a new book. Great Gatsby. Bamidbar. Oh, that's right. I got, I got confused. I'm easily confused, but we all know that. Um, all right. I suppose we can do that. Rabbi Schatz, um, I found I didn't get to show you because we were prompt in our arrival. I have a, I have a, a visual guide. Great. You know, I knew you'd like that. Thank you. Uh, but but we'll we'll get into the verse first, and we don't want to we don't want to spoil everyone's vision of what we might be talking about here. All right. So, um, all right, Rabbi Do you have any introductory words on the book we're beginning? Um, no, I guess I would just. Uh, they're not really introductory words, I guess just background that um, we're beginning Bamidbar, which is numbers. Uh, it is very clear that that we are um, in a part of our story that has less narrative and a little bit more listing, <laughs> um, which is why we call it numbers in English. Um, Bamidbar makes a little bit more sense in terms of location, knowing that we are in the wilderness, but numbers in English is how how this um, how this Parsha and how this book begins with a census. So we are taking uh, things quite literally at the beginning of the book here. And um, and that's really all I have to say. It's it's seen as kind of an in-between book, both because if you're a kid, you're usually out of school when this book is read. If you're an adult, you might be on summer vacation. Um, and so it's not a book that people know as... Do adults they, get summer vacation? Um, this, it's it's not a book... Where's, that, when do I get a summer vacation? It's not a book that many people know as much about and as many stories in as much depth as Genesis and Exodus. So uh, it'll be nice to be able to travel through it with all of you. Travel through... I see what you did there. Why weren't women counted? What does that mean, Karen? (laughs) What? It says count all the men under 20 and over. We haven't even gotten to the Parsha yet. I know, but in case you need a Kushio. Spoiler alert. Oh, 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 thank you. Okay. Yes. Women weren't counted because they weren't the head of their household. Though I will say there, there, it's true we start with a census, Rabbi Schatz. There are some nice little nuggets nuggets of narrative in there you got pinchas you got you got balak no, not, in the, not in the beginning of this part oh this parsha. ah i see okay go ahead R- rabbi Schatz and i were were pondering picking a different parsha and trying to do an old switcheroo on you guys because there there's not much in parshat bamidbar but fret not everybody we found some good stuff and and Rabbi Schatz is from, so she's going to teach some Hasidut today. It's all very exciting. Okay, here we go. Um, starting at the beginning, which is 
from what I understand, a very good place to start. Um, we don't have we don't have much, right? There's not much to catch up here in terms of narrative. The the first chapter of Bamidbar, God saying to Moses, "Take a sentence, t- sentence." Jeez, wow, Rabbi Shots, it's been a long week. Take a census. There we go. Um, of the whole Israelite community, Karen, to your question about why it says every male, my, my sense is that as we are getting closer and closer to the land, although not all that close as we continue to journey for decades, um, that, that in some ways this is actually a military um, experience, which is not to say that women cannot be members of the armed forces, but I think in the ancient Near East, it was generally pretty segregated by gender in terms of how that was conceptualized. Um, Rabbi Schatz, I don't know if you want to chime in with a thought on that, but that's that's my sense of it. Um, and in terms of where we go from there, pretty much the whole first chapter is just going through the census, lots of names from all the different tribes. Those are the chieftains. And then we start counting, the chieftains are counting and we get clan by clan, tribe by tribe. Uh, in case for those keeping score at home, uh, there were more people counted in Shimon than in Reuven, but just fewer in God than in Reuven. I know everyone was very worried about that. You woke up this morning and you thought to yourself, oh dear, uh, how will I ever know about the number of the tribe of Zvulun as opposed to Yisachar Zvulun, Zvulun by, by a solid three grand. So there we go. Uh, we go through and we get the census. And that's pretty much the totality of the first chapter going tribe by tribe with the, the minor exception um, of the fact that when it comes to the Levim, they're not recorded in the same way because they have a different status, right? They they are in charge of the Mishkan. They're in charge of the tabernacle and uh, all of the sort of both furnishings and all of the rituals that are connected to that. And that's really their primary obligation. So because they're in a different category of Israelite, they aren't counted in the same kind of way. And there you can see in verse 52, in terms of this more military orientation, right, the Israelites shall encamp troop by troop, that, that there is that sort of um, sense of, of building up that, that, that potential fighting force as they're going to go um, and take the land, but it's different for um, the Levim. And then we conclude chapter one, yea, verily, so they did. Which brings us to the beginning of chapter two. I think it's been some time since we have actually focused our uh, energy in, in, a, in a class on just one verse, but we're going to give it a shot today and see how it goes. And not just a verse, but a verse that when Rabbi Shant said to me, hey, let's focus in on this verse. I said, boy, oh boy, how are we going to talk about that verse for a whole class? But we both found some pretty interesting stuff on it. So we're going to be focusing in on Bamidbar chapter 2, verse 2, after we are tipped off by saying that God spoke to Moses and Aaron. Very good. Verse 2. Ish al-diglo be'otot le'beit avotam. That each person, right, each ish, with his standard, with his flag, Underneath the otot, underneath the banners of Beit Avotam, of his like 
father's or ancestor's house, Yachanu B'nai Yisrael, that each individual person with his flag underneath the banners of his ancestral house, that is how B'nai Yisrael should encamp. That they should each sort of camp around um, the Ohel Moed, the tent of the meeting where the, the tabernacle is. That's where they should be camping. I think it's obvious. We can all tell that that's more than enough material to go on for an entire class. Right, Rabbi Schatz? Yeah, I think so. Okay, great. Rabbi Schatz, over to you. Okay. So Karen already started us off with why weren't women counted? Any other kushiot that people have on this verse? Yeah, Jay. If the women weren't counted, why are they then required to stand under the banners of their ancestral house still? Um, great. We, you mean because it says the Israelites in the English? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because in the Hebrew, it's the English is actually not a great translation here. Um, but what it's getting at in the Hebrew is that a man would stand, a, a, a guy and his family, back to Karen's question, would stand under their family flag. And then it refers to all of B'nai Israel. So do we expect that that? B'nai Israel includes women? Yes, of course. Um, but it's interesting that in, according to the Hebrew, it's actually just the men who have to stand under their, their ancestral flag. Um, so I don't know is the answer, um, in terms of why is it so specific to men earlier and now inclusive? My guess is that it is most inclusive uh, here because now we're talking about everybody, whereas before we're talking about heads of household. And back in the day, heads of household were just men. Um, And I don't think that's, I've said this before, I don't think that's a sexist statement. I think it's just fact. Men were the head of the household, and so they were the ones who were being counted. Um, Just like today, men or women can be heads of household. Uh, Elon. Uh, why is it important? They say they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. What's right. the significance at a distance? Fantastic. Great. So why say at a distance? Why tell us the, you know, that the, when they were camping around, it had to be a certain space away, right? It's like, reminds me a lot of COVID. Um, why, why couldn't it just be that they camped around the tent of meeting? Great. Tybal. Um. I don't have a concordance in my head, but up until this point, I thought the only times we see the oat word is in connection with a covenant. Interesting. I don't know. I also don't have a concordance in my head. Um, uh, but Ravashir has a concordance in his hand, so he's going to look it up. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Let's see what, what he comes up with. I actually have a phone in my hand with an app that has a concordance in it on the phone that's in my hand, but I don't want to get too technical about it. So, Thank you. That was an important interruption. Um, Denise. So what are the banners? Yeah. yeah. Like, just what are they? Where did they come from? What's on them? Why do they matter? All that stuff. 
Great. Perfect. Um, so one of the, again, this, this translation isn't fantastic, um, but it says all deglo and then it says beotot and deglo is usually a flag and then otot is usually a sign or a banner. Uh, so it's interesting that there's also a difference between those two things we think because the, the Torah has an economy of language. So if both words are there, they must mean different things or at least be different items. Um, so yes, what are these banners? Where do they come from? What do they signify? Rabbi Shapiro has concordance in his hand. Well, I, I was, I haven't looked at Oat yet. I'll, I'll go into the language piece for a second. And then I want to say something about Degel, just pointing out the doubling of the verb Yachanu, right? That, that you see yeah. in the first half of the verse and then in the second half of the verse as well. Like that's where they would camp. And also they would camp around the Ohel Moed, which I think gets into a little bit of Elon's question, which is like, the, the circling and the distance, right? That there seem to be different pieces signified yeah. there. The word degel, I'll look up out in a minute. The word degel is actually a very, very rare word in Tanakh. Yeah. It appears almost exclusively in Bamidbar. It's mentioned once in Shirashirim um, and pretty much just at the beginning of the book of Bamidbar in the context of what seems to be like the censuses. So we think like degel is one of those words that pretty common in like, modern Hebrew because, you know, flags, um, but actually quite unusual uh, in biblical Hebrew. It's just always interesting when there's that. And makes sense that it comes about when there's a tribe, because if it, if we were to talk about flags in the time of the Exodus or Genesis, like what would those flags be for? So once we're a people and once we're a tribal people, it makes sense that there are flags uh, and that that word starts popping up places. Any other um, kushio? I don't think I see any hands. Okay. Um, Rabbi Shavir, do you want to? Do I want to what? Do, do you want to start? Why don't you uh, Why don't you start with, I'm excited to hear your chassidut, Rabbi Shavir. I'm always excited. Oh, when you're, you want me to start with that? Why not? Okay. All right. Then. Um, okay. So the reason that I got excited about this verse is because one of the things that uh, has been ingrained in my upbringing, in my brain, um, for most of my life has been that you are, you are representative of your family, that you are your name. When, when someone knows me as Rebecca Schatz, they don't just know me as Rebecca Schatz. They also know me as Dale and Tracy's daughter and Sandy and Bill's granddaughter and so on and so forth. And that your rep- reputation is not just about you as a person, but also about the people who you're associated with. So this verse really stuck out to me because obviously I don't carry around an actual flag or stand under banners um, for people to know what family I come from or tribe I am associated with. But the way in which you are in the world, I think, is is kind of a metaphor for what they're showing here uh, in an actual reality of, of having a flag or having a banner that you stand under, that you should feel that way about going out into the world as a person, that you stand under a banner and that you stand, um, and that you stand under a flag of your ancestors. So I found a, quite a, quite a bunch of pieces here, but I will show the Hasidic piece first because Rabbi Shapiro was excited about it. So never want to disappoint Rabbi Shapiro. Um, 
You were, you were, don't put this on me. You were excited about it. No, no, I am. No, I'm saying like, I'm going to start with that because you were excited about this piece. I, it was, there was no blame there, sir. Just calm down. Okay. So this Very is from, calm. oh gosh. Well, okay. This is from the Maya Shilola. Uh, let me just make sure this is the right one. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. So did you find this one also, Ramesh Mira? I saw it. There's there's two other pieces that I thought were particular. I mean, I like I said, I wound up finding much more on these than I thought I would. Um, I did see this in, and I like it, but there's thought, in that he thought he wasn't going to find anything. So yes, go ahead. Oh, totally. You said <laughs> we're going to do this verse, and I thought there was going to be like nothing on it, but no, I found at least two other pieces that I really really liked. But yes, I enjoyed this as well. Okay, so. What it says here, again, on this verse, specifically on this flag piece is, each person shall camp with his or her flag under the signs of their ancestral house. The children of Israel shall camp. So now this is, that that was a translation of the verse. This translation is a little bit less clear in English, but actually is a much more direct translation of the verse than the one that we have at the beginning of our source sheet, um, because it's talking about flags and signs in two different ways, similar to what Denise had as a question. The flag teaches recognition and publicizing to the world, and the Holy One of Blessing taught that even in the encampment of the flags, there are levels. That in the east was the flag of Yehuda, and in the west, the flag of Dan, which were the last ones to move to their flags. That's lovely, but not super relevant. And truly, Aholiav ben Achisamach of the tribe of Dan lifted his heart in knowledge and wisdom, just as Betzalel of the tribe of Yehuda. And through this, the Holy One of Blessing teaches us that Aholiav did not entertain the bad thoughts, such as, why is Betzalel first and I have to go last? And regarding this, it is written, a person with his or her flag. That is, that each person has the recognition of the honor of heaven, and there there one should one camp. That is bizarre English. And there you should camp. And not feel jealousy towards one another in every place there is my honor. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I'll tell you the things that I liked about this, and then and then ignore the things I don't like. Um <laughs> and that's probably going to be the part that Rabbi Shapiro does like, so we can go back. To I was going to say, truly a rabbinic response. I'm just going to, you know, uh, let, let's go with the pieces I like. And we'll... Yeah, exactly. I mean, duh. Okay, so this, I like the beginning of this here, that, it sh- that there's something about publicizing out. That it's not just about who you are or who you belong to, but that other people know. So that they can regard you as a part of something else. So I really, I really like that as a way of signifying tribal life at this point, right? You know who you belong to. You know how to then um, interact with someone based on their tribe. There's also problems with this, but I, but I like that that is um, that that's being pointed out here. And then this, I don't know if I would call it midrash or just story um, about Betzalel and Aholiav. The thing that I enjoy about this moment is that what the flag is doing, or maybe even what the banner is doing in this particular case, because now it's not the individual flag, but under the banner of this family, that you are able to say, just because we're different people, we're under the same banner. And if we're under the same banner, that must mean that we are equal in some way. So my siblings and I are all different people. But because we come from the same family, 
There are things that we share. There are values that we share. And there are elements of equality because we share those things. So I, I really, the, the God piece I think is lovely. Um, and it's not that I don't like it. It just doesn't speak to me as much as a way of understanding this verse as thinking about actual people, whether in a family or in a tribe. Um, so that was my, that was my interest around this verse, uh, around this commentary. Sorry. Ari Shapiro has thoughts about that. Probably doesn't agree with me, but. It's not, it's not that I don't agree. I, I would, it's interesting. I mean, I can share my picture whenever Rabbi, it's not my picture, the picture I found whenever Rabbi Schatz deems it appropriate for all the visual learners in the house say way of, wait, no, put the, mm, Oh, on. sorry. I thought that that was a cue to have you share your picture. No, 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 no. Before we get, mm, okay, there we go. Very good. Um, it, it's, the rabbis rock out on this verse pretty hardcore, right? Like there's all sorts of stuff about like the colors and the symbols and the, like there's, there's a lot of pretty funky stuff on this, which is always fun. Um, and it is interesting because on the one hand, Mashulach's comment that in the encampment of flags, there are levels. There, there are some comments that talk about the different levels of the camps. And there are also some pieces that talk about, how actually like quite democratic and smooth the process was to set this up. And I can, I can bring a piece on that in a second. Um, but Rabbi Schitt's, the, the face was partly because like, it, they're actually, they're, they're not the same family, like they're the same family, but they're very different tribes and they're in different places. I'll also just pick up the sense that. Aholiav and Betzala? Yeah. You see, he was in Don and Betzala was in Yehuda. It says it right there. Yeah. Yeah. But they are, but they're, they're, they're related. They are related. Well, they're all related. It's been Israel. Okay, yeah, but they're actually related. Like they are, they're, what are they? Cousins? Brothers? They're related. They're like familially related. Correct. But they're, but they're, they're being separated out, yes. which, which could cause some real strife. Yeah. And, and just like, just to put a finer point on it for those who might not remember, back in the construction of the Mishkan, like these were like two of the leader, right? Like the two they were named the artisans, mm-hmm. right? Whereas they're being put in like completely different places. So it's, so you might, you might think, right. There's, there's an embedded, you might think there, right. That why is he first and I'm last. And I think the subtext of that is like, when we both did a ton of work on this whole project, right. It's not just why is he ahead of me, but it's like, we, right. we both worked really hard on this project and, and that somehow amazingly th- there isn't that jealousy, right. That, that through, through this somehow there, there isn't that envy or, or that jealousy. Well, and especially there, because they're artists, right. I think that that's another piece that's so that that's really difficult speaking from a family of artists that you often you often worry, am I as good as this person at this thing that we share, <laughs> right? right? Our musicality, right? Who's better, who's not? And for them, being being artists and being architects, th- the fact that they could still stand under something, albeit, yes, from different sides, but they could still stand under something that they did share, to me, is just such a, it's just a beautiful, like, kumbaya moment, which I really like. Taibo. Um. So I was trying to figure out what you meant by, unless I, I might have misheard or misunderstood, but by you're saying that Don and Yehuda were more related because to me, they're the least related because Don is from Bilha, who's Rachel's 
Rachel's concubine, and Yehuda is Leah. So there. I was I was just saying that Oholiab and Betzalel are relate are like familially related. But but I guess that's why maybe because I do genealogy, I was thinking more of who their mothers were. Yeah. Why are they more related than others? They're not. They're not any more related. I mean, they're not any more related or any less related than other people who are related to one another. I think that the Meashiloch is just using them here because, as Rabbi Shapiro just mentioned, they also then worked together. So there was this element of that and that, and then we get the, the kind of like umbrella of under God piece at the, at the end of their, um, of the example of the two of them as the way of bringing them together. I think they're just being used as an example. I don't think it's like, oh, they are the epitome of this example. I don't know as much about the Meishiloach, so maybe he has something with Aholiav and Betzalel. That's possible, but but I, I believe they're just being used as an example. Maybe Rabbi Shapiro knows more about them. I think it has less to do... I, I'm also not quite... Like, you keep saying they're cousins. Like, all of Bnei Israel are related. I think it's much more about the fact, like, the, the artist piece. That's, that's what I see in it. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. I was just, yeah, okay. Yes, we can stop. I've um, said it many I'll, times. I'll introduce a, a Midrash that, that Rashi picks up on that I thought was interesting, um, where sort of also interpolating narrative. Oh, I'll do Rabbi Shant a favor. I'll pull up the midrash so she can read it. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Um, the problem is I like just compile all this stuff. And so it looks messy when I just share like my Parsha class notes document, but Rabbi Shant for you. You're doing great. I, I know. Um, so. This is part of a of a much 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 longer midrash. Um, it's actually quite extensive, but basically what what's set up is and I, and I think I think it's related a little bit to what the Mashulach was talking about. So you see, when Israel went forth from Egypt, God said, "Now is the time for them to make standards, right? Just just as their father told them to." So that, so like the backfill on this story is there's this scene where Jacob's on his deathbed and as you might remember from that scene, like all of his sons are around him and the blessings that aren't kind of blessings, but aren't really are sort of given to all of them, right? They're all sort of stationed around him. So God says to Moses, like, let's do it. Let's, let's set up the camp. But then Moses was worried. And he said, there's going to be this dissension. If I told you to go east, they're going to say, well, no, we need to be in the south. And then every other tribe would be like that one, right? That no one would want to be where they were told to be. But then God said to them, don't, like, don't sweat it, Mo. What concern is that to you? They, they don't need you in this manner. They'll recognize their dwellings by themselves. Why? Because their father will was on their hand on how to, how to camp out. I'm not establishing, um, I'm not establishing something new. They already know it, right? Just, just like they were around him. That's exactly the way that they're going to set up around the tabernacle. So I, I think it's related to the Meashiloach. I'm, I'm sure the Meashiloach knew this Midrash, right? This doesn't specifically mention Betzalel and Ohaliav, but but I think it's interesting to also have this as as sort of a parallel text to what the Meashiloach is talking about 
insofar as there's this concern, right? There's this embedded concern, which, by the way, side note, looking at how things went in the desert is well-grounded, that the people might fetch and complain and bicker a little bit. Yes. Um, but I think it's interesting that it's sort of um, mitigated and potentially even diffused by this this moment that we know from previous narrative when all of B'nai Yisrael, here in the, the most literal sense, all of Jacob's kids were gathered around him. And then you sort of like map it out, right? So if Judah was here and, you know, Yisrael was over here, then when you're in the desert, well, Mishkan in the middle, and then, right, those kids set up, those tribes set up around the Mishkan as they were set up around Jacob. Um, and I think that there's, like, it's interesting narratively in terms of, like, oh, that's the fix for that. But I think it's also, in terms of the principle, interesting to think about how, like, a moment of reconciliation then gets extrapolated out into this much much larger context. So I, th I thought that that was an interesting midrash to um, to uh, reflect reflect on that. Oh, Rabbi Shantz just quoted the Zohar in the chat, so I'm actually no. Curious. I was just I was just showing why why I think that the Meashiloach uses Oholiav and Betzalel as the example as opposed to just two other people. Got it. Any thoughts on anything that Rabbi Shapiro or I have brought? We don't have to just keep throwing texts at you. But we can. Rabbi Shots, what do you think of that? Here, ooh, should I show should I show the picture while while everyone chews over that me those midrashim? Yes. Rabbi Shots, I brought a picture for you. I know. So here was here was an artist's depiction of of what this might have looked like. What do you think, Rabbi Shots? What are we looking at? Well, so here, here in the middle, where you're you're looking at a computer screen, Rabbi Shatz. So here in the middle, yeah. right, would be like. By the way, Everyday Holiness is a great book, and you should definitely buy it. It's in your. Well, so that's what I was going to say. Is is like if you're looking at my screen, this is the the tease yeah. for my Shavuot class that I'm also working on over here, which is at 11 p.m. Because Rabbi Shatz didn't want to to have me go earlier. Sir, I am teaching at three, so you um, are getting off the hook. Okay. Yeah, but you didn't put me. You know, you still stuck. All right. So what are we looking at? What's in the middle here? Um. No, I was just saying this is the tease for my Shavuot class. Everyday holiness is only the beginning. We got, know, we got, you, we got Jungian that. psychology. We got, we got some poetry. We yeah. got um, Rabbi Shagar, who I've really been enjoying. Who else we got? We got oh, I think we have Maori Naim in there. Some Chasidut, of course. It's going to be great. 11 p.m. Sunday night. Okay, what are we looking at in this picture? So here's an artist. Fine. Here's an artistic depiction of the verse that we're talking about. So here in the middle, you can see like this is where the the tabernacle would be. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Here is then where all of like sort of the flags of the tribes are. And they would be um, underneath. Kind them. of kind of depicted. So just for those for the sorry podcast people. Um, but for those whom a visual depiction <laughs> podcast is helpful, people. we podcast can send people. it. We can send it to Bert, and he can put it with the podcast. But this is um, so the people would be underneath the flags. 
No, I think it's just symbolic. I don't think oh. it's like these are massive, like Maya that'd be so cool flags. if they were like chuppas, you know, and everybody stood underneath them. That that is not what I understood it to be, but that's a that's a beautiful that's a beautiful midrash, Rabbi Shots. Thank you. Um, all by myself. I I think that I think that one of the things that we're seeing both in the art and even in these midrashim is that. There was something really, and this is a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow in Beitenu, but um, there's What's something Beitenu? there's something really interesting. I am not going to talk about what Beitenu is right now. We need to stay on topic. Um, I start now. Uh, there's something very interesting about this part of Bamidbar, albeit that we're at the beginning, but this part of Bamidbar really... Um, really focusing and putting a lot of influence on individuals, but in a group. So it's not just that you are B'nai Israel and no one has any identity and you, you know, you, you are one in a crew. You are not your own person. And yet there are little moments, which again, you'll hear about such learn with me tomorrow in Beitenu, but also see here of uniqueness that do get to shine through and I, I think that's such a, as a teacher, I think that's such a powerful way of thinking about any setting you're in, right? Being able to see the whole classroom, but also know the individual students that you're attending to and in a community and knowing that you're having services for a hundred people, but what certain people in that room would look forward to hearing and, and seeing. So that, that to me is what, what both of these Midrashim and your art uh, is Not my art is sharing with us. No, I I mean the art you brought. Yeah, I I think it's also interesting. I mean, we spoke about how that that first translation we looked at doesn't really, yeah, you know, communicate the the principle being shared, right? Because I do think it's about there is there is the individual and then there is the tribe and then there's there's the collective right and sort of those those layers of community and that each individual is worthy of notice like each individual each household each tribe and then the totality of the community right i i think it right cuz there's the ish then there's his house then there's his tribe and then, right, it's like the inverse of lech lecha mi yartzecha mi moladeticha mi beit avicha, right? It's yeah. like you're, 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 you're sort of nested as a part of different levels of community. Yeah, um, totally. It's like a temple Beth Am, different minyanim. And, like really inter- and really interesting that you just brought up that verse as the way of thinking about this, because that's also about land and family and connection. And yet you are your own person within those pieces. Although I don't know what Abraham's flag looked like. Um, well, he didn't have one. He wasn't part of a tribe. He was the, the leader of the tribe. So for those who are artistically inclined, you can draw Abraham's flag and submit it to Rabbi Schatz and she'll grade them because she's, you know, no. Okay. Sure. Um, Ilan, I have a, a brief thought over to you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it because I found. Here, ugh, Ilan raised his hand. No, but he was asking about like the distance and that kind of stuff. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll share very briefly because well, we're 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 on topic, and Rabbi Shantz is telling me I should stay on topic. Um, but there was an interesting comment in in the Shnei Luchot Habrit, quoting quoting the Ari Rabbi Isaac Luria, um, 
along this idea of like groupings and classes and all that kind of stuff, which for those who even sort of moderately track outside of the obvious like main story that we're all tracking this week as we um, think about Israel and pray and hope that things calm down there very, very soon and that everyone remains safe. Um, But not, not to bury the lead, um, but the news coming out this week of the latest Pew research study in terms of Jewish demographics and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it, it's interesting to be in a week when we're talking about census and tribe and grouping um, in the Parsha. And, you know, then also this sort of once every decade, I believe the word is decennial. Um, did I get that right? Um, this one. Don't give me that look, Rabbi. That's, that's like what, that's the look like Sarah gives me when I use a word. And she's like, oh. We're, you know, decennial. Um, it's interesting to have that this week as we're hearing about demographics and movements and and intermarriage percentages and percentages of people who go to Shul and all of that. And tribes. And and tribes, right. So with so with that, um yesterday, um Rabbi Shantz, do you know, do you know Dr. Michal Bitone? Have you ever heard yes. or read her stuff? Yeah. So I was in an awesome webinar with her yesterday. She she oh Tybal Tybal likes her too. Um, she rocks. She was totally awesome, um, laying out some really really interesting perspective and thoughts about demographics, particularly when it comes to. Um, Sephardic Jewry and the different identities they're in and the intersectionality and being part of a group and feeling not a part of a group and talking about Judaisms rather than Judaism, um, which is also interesting to think about this week, bringing that all the way back to my intro, which is the Ari. So this is already centuries ago, um, talking about, he said, just as there were four flags in the camp of the Israelites, so I guess he's thinking about like the four cardinal directions rather than 12, putting that aside, the Jewish people are made up of four classes, each observing their own respective customs, dividing them into Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Catalonians, and Italians, which is very, oh, look at Rabbi Shantz's face. She's very confused by this. But but regardless of the groupings, right? Which which by the way, like you generally don't hear that today. Well, are you are you Sephardic, Ashkenazi, Catalonian, Italian, right? Those those aren't sort of the core groups that we go to today. But then this is the interesting piece where he winds up. Each group remains loyal to the customs handed down by its ancestors, and each set of customs is valued equally in the eyes of God. I think that's so like I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Each group remains loyal to the customs handed down by its ancestors. Yeah. Right. So each group is its own group. They, they do things distinctly and differently. And each set of customs is valued equally in the eyes of God. So there are these distinct groups. Yeah. And ultimate, and this goes back to like the Betzal Oliyah, Betzal Yeah, exactly. Right, right. The same idea, but, but talking here less about the individual, right. And more about like that sort of Umbrella. tribal sense yeah, within which there are distinctions and equality. 
And I think right. that that's, that's a really interesting tension. And, yeah. and as we're talking about Sensei and tribes and denominations and percentages, like, like that to me is, is a really, really important underlying principle. It, it also, really not to, not to get into the Israel conversation, but because it's on all of our minds, it also gets to the, um, it, get, it gets to the fact that when we talk about a situation in Israel and we generalize, there's actually more problem with that than when we're specific. So if you're talking about groups of people, it's actually extremely important in those moments to to pick out the ways in which there are differences as opposed to just generalities, um, just to move it away from the Israel piece for a second. If you were to say all women, blah, 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 blah there would be hundreds and thousands and millions of women who would be like, nah, not me, not me. Right. Because that's a generality. That's not a fair thing to say for a whole group of people. The same happens with all Israelis, all Palestinians, right? That's it just, you can't, you can't speak that way and mean something that, that has such nuance and such uniqueness. And the same with Judaism, you can't say all Jews, because there are many different kinds of Jews, many different tribes of Jews within the same religion who do things differently, who have different values, who, who come to the, to the, um, table, proverbial table with their own, um, interests. And it just, yeah, I, I really, I mean, we could keep going, but I really love that idea. Denise. So it's interesting about, um, the tribalist thing. Because in Europe, that's still, that's still kind of part of the consciousness of, I mean, today. And so let's say in Italy, every, I mean, Italy was only united in the 1800s and they're very, very proud of being united. And there's even statues that talk about World War One as a bonding experience because there were Sicilians and Milanese fighting side by side. But they're really, really, really into their regions. And like, if you ask somebody in Rome, you know, are you Italian? They're like, no, I'm Roman. Mm-hmm. And, and in Florence too. And then, and every year, like actually around this time, they actually have reenactments of like jousting and they go around with their flags. My friend's son has a Florentine flag in his dorm room. Wow. They're really into it. Total side note. I think this might also be why European soccer fans get into brawls and American fans don't because hmm. there's all this other stuff underneath it. Interesting. I didn't know that about your, I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't know that about, um, about European culture that it's still so kind of, uh, tribal or, or, uh, distinct in culture. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and I mean, it could be some places more than others also. Yeah. But- yeah. Right, right. But yeah, well, it's definitely I mean, in the consciousness. Spain, Spain as well, Denise, to your point. I mean, when, like, it's interesting that, that the RE specifically named Spain at, like, Sfardim, Spain, yeah. and yeah. Catalonia, right? Like, yeah, yeah, there is an ongoing conflict as to whether Catalonia is part of Spain or not. Yeah, there's no conflict according to Catalonians. Right. Co- co- correct. There's ongoing, <laughs> I'll say there's ongoing disagreement, right? And there, there are, there are categories that get imposed and I mean, yeah. to, to briefly hop back, back over to Israel and then dancing very nimbly away from it, boundaries that get imposed, right. By external, right. Like uh, one of the major issues in the middle East is that Europeans went in after world war one and carved things up. Well, right. and it's interesting because 
that was actually done mostly by Brits, like Iran was yeah. British Petroleum and Iraq yeah. was whatever. And the British are not as tribal because right. their whole thing is dominance right. and Britain dominates all the others on yeah. the British Isles. Right. Yeah. And, and getting back to the identity sense, I mean, I'll bring it back to Dr. Bacone's webinar yesterday. She, she was talking about on a, on a personal level, you know, she, there are different kinds of Spartic Jewry. Yeah. Right. Usually we talk about Ashkenazi. Are you Ashkenazi or are you Spartic? And she was talking mm-hmm. about how like, well, some of my relatives have this more mystical Spartic orientation and some of my Spartic relatives have this more very like, you know, what we would, what we Ashkenazi Jews, me as an Ashkenazi Jew, I would say like Litvish. She's like this sort of Rambami, more, much more rationalist orientation, right? Like it's, it's not the type of Sephardic Jewry, it's there are types of Sephardic Jewry um, and any kind of external categorization inevitably sort of flattens out difference and distinction. And again, I think going back into this verse, then I think it's interesting to think about like those layers, right? The individual, the familial, the tribal, the national, and that that we all hold all of these different um, identities and within that, right, even within those four, there, there can be um, a lot of different distinctions and layers and nuances to that. Um, so it feels like particularly um, re- relevant this week with, with, with everything that's, that's floating around. Um, can I share one more piece? Is that okay with you? I, I would be delighted. Um, so this is Rabbeinu Bachia. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, but this, this particular slice here of Rabbeinu Bachia that I uh, have highlighted here, I really enjoy talking about what the difference is between otot and digle, right? That the the banner or the sign as opposed to the the flag. And what he says here, um, he actually says that he's quoting Ibn Ezra and Nachmanides. So um, interesting that it seems like there are three commentators who who are trying to say the same thing. It is equally possible to understand the word otot as related to the word ot, as in ot nafsho, the sign of one soul, the desire of his soul is how they translate it here, or as like bechol ot nafshecha, in accordance with all of your desire, which we know from, from the language of the Shema. So this, not exactly, but um, all three of those words are used in, in relation to the Shema paragraphs. This is, this to me is one of the ways that the, that the otot are different than the digle, right? That something seems to be much more kind of inner and personal and unique as opposed to familial and tribal and uh, communal almost that, that you still get to have Whatever you desire, whoever you want to be gets to come out even below this banner of the Schatz family or the Shapiro family or whatever it is um, that you still... Our Shapiro's laughing that I mentioned his family, but... Um, that, I'm like that, thinking about what my family's banner would look like. It would be very... Um, that, that, I should just know not to use you as an example. Um, that... that uh, 
that if you are underneath a quote banner, right, the same goes with like if you work at a firm or at a synagogue or for a school, right, you are associated with that place, with their values, with their um, mission, with what they want to get across. And sometimes that is, that's difficult. You don't get to show your personal values or identity necessarily at all times when you are underneath a banner, Um, so I, I really like that these commentators point to the desire of your soul, that it's not always something that's on the outside or something that's going to create the next banner, but that would be something that you as a person are identified as and bring to, bring to your tribe, bring to your, um, bring to your community. Makes me think about, I mean, Rabbi Schatz, I don't know if you've ever done this. Like if, if you get invited to sign like a petition or something or other as like, as, as clergy, right? And it's like, well, if I sign it as rabbi, right? If I sign it as Rabbi Machapiro and I work at Temple Beth Am, are people going to see me signing that petition as Matt Shapiro as an individual, Matt Shapiro as one of the rabbis at Beth Am, Matt Shapiro has the professional title of rabbi, right? Like, um, yeah, is, there a different, is, is there a difference if I sign it? Rabbi Matt Shapiro without listing my institutional affiliation, right? And sort of claiming that as an individual. I mean, you could zoom it out even further, right? When, if I post something on Facebook, am I seen as Rebecca Schatz, a person who lives in the world, who has friends outside of being a rabbi and being a professional at a synagogue? Or am I forever, because I am now a professional in a public setting, seen as anything I post as coming from my rabbinic chair. And I know you're making faces because you don't use social media. I'm so grateful I'm not on social media. I I would would go even crazier than I already am. It's something that I think about all the time. Because I know that, that that whether it's good or bad, it's being it's being judged, and that and this goes for any profession. I just can only speak for the rabbinic profession. That your title also connotes something. So if I sign a document, a legal Jewish document, as rabbi, as a female. There's a lot of baggage behind that. Um, if it's a legal Jewish document that Rabbi Matt Shapiro does not have, even if I'm, and I'm not saying that this is true, I'm just using him as an example. Even if I'm a better or more authoritative rabbi, because I am a female, my name with rabbi means something very different than his name with rabbi. So yes, we could zoom out so much further than just like what the Torah is probably saying, but, but it is interesting that, that those pieces play out into modern day life. Also, Elon. It's all layers of of identity, right? I mean, we're talking about identity. Totally. Just on the topic of how does one identify themselves? It's actually become a quite relevant, uh, particularly over call it the last year and change is there have been an increasingly large amount of petitions and corporate executives run into this problem frequently. So I have seen CEOs sign petitions, but in parentheses next to their name, say, in my personal capacity, hmm. right? as, as to indicate that they're not uh, speaking on behalf of their company. So yeah. it, 
could be something one can do if one were a rabbi as well, because I don't think you should ever give up your title of rabbi. You've earned that. That is a professional recognition. However, it is fair to assume that somebody would, if you do not otherwise say so, that somebody could reasonably assume that you're speaking in your capacity as the rabbi of uh, Temple Beth Am. So totally. if you specifically said, you know, not it, it, this is in my personal capacity, I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah, no, that's a really, it's a really great point. And, and you maybe think of also all the moments that people don't sign onto petitions. And if you don't see a name, right, there was, I forget what it was, Rabbi Shapiro might remember, but there was something that went out at the beginning of the pandemic that a bunch of other places signed onto. I didn't even know it was happening. And all of a sudden everyone was like, why didn't Betham sign on? And it's like, what, what are you talking about? And, and sometimes it's just that we don't know that it's happening. And sometimes there's good reason for us not to be signing on. I don't actually remember what it was, but I I I also remember that happening. And I also don't remember what it was 110,000 years ago. Okay. So, so that's the, that's the other thing, right? Is, if you don't sign and people expect you to sign, then then what does that do? I will just bring it. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, no, no. no, I was just going to say, I think we also collectively and certain for people in roles of like public leadership live much more public lives yeah. than anybody used to. Like if right. the Rambam didn't sign a petition, no one ever would have known, right? Because A, I don't know what petitions looked like a thousand years ago, right? But but by the time everybody found out that he didn't sign the petition, yeah. It was 25 years later, right? Like, like everything is so immediate that there's like, why why haven't you signed it yet? Why haven't you signed it yet? What do you think about this? It's like, well, you know, and Rabbi Schatz, the text that you brought was talking like the individual is thinking like within themselves, right? Like everything is so publicly broadcast now. I think it just makes everything much more fraught and and charged, right? There are obviously gifts to the way in which we can all communicate and stay in touch and all of that but it, it's um it's exhausting yeah yeah any other thoughts or comments i have a i have a groovy shavuot piece can i close in my groovy shavuot piece does it have to do with this partial it it sure does oh okay that's it's a it's a it's a twofer that's why i'm excited about it okay i trust you sometimes everybody makes mistakes um <laughs> Elon, I I just wanted to say very briefly, because you were you were talking about like like distance and and how the whole thing is set up. I I just saw very briefly there's there's rabbinic comments about how everybody was was a mile away, but like no more, no less, because that's the distance that you're sort of like allowed to travel on Shabbat. So so again, this interesting like it feels related a little bit, like close but not too close. Right, that like you need to be close enough to be able to go Davin. Basically, actually, like I'm about a mile away from Shul. I did it exactly. So as soon as I put up my banner, I'm doing it exactly right. Um, it's all about the banner. Um, so once I get that up and running, I'm all set. But it's about like a mile, right? Like like a mile's radius to be like within that that like two it said two thousand cubit radius. So I thought that that was an interesting um, piece layered in. I didn't want to let things go by without without letting that go um so okay in bamid bar rabbits it's a short piece with a much longer comment but i at least want to share the short piece so it says this at the time that god was revealed at har sinai which as we know shavuot is coming and rabbi Schatz has organized great stuff for the temple Betham community 
even though she's making me teach very late at night uh, on Zoom and in person. You can only see me in person and Rabbi Shant's in person, right? Yes. I'm also right. online, but yes. Well, you're in both. She doesn't. She doesn't want to put me out in public. Okay, uh, just me in person. You are out in public. You're just only out in public to our people. Correct. Anyway, at the time that so Shavuot's coming Sunday night. We're going to learn all night, or at least part of the night. It's going to be fantastic. At the time that God was revealed in Har Sinai, twenty-two thousand chariots of angels, each one with flags, attended the revelation. This is this is later in the Rabbeinu Bachia piece too. Anyway, yeah. well, it's, I mean, it's from Bami Bar. Like he pulled it. Yep, go, go, go. When Bnei Yisrael saw this, they immediately desired to have flags like the angels, and God agreed. So it's actually pulling it all together. So look at that, right? That it's connected, like that the flags didn't come out of nowhere. That they, it's actually hearkening back to an experience of revelation. Um, which I think is just an interesting framework to have as we go into Shavuot. Just layer in like one more piece, which was a teaching based on something Rav, Rav Cook said. Um, basically, he started talking about how angels, right? We, we're taught in our tradition that angels like have, have one specific job, right? Like if you're an angel, you do, you go, you do one thing and that's your job. Then you like need to, right, you can only do one thing at a time. But because of that, each ang- angel carried its own distinct flag. Um, and so he closes this teaching by saying the Jewish people desired flags like those that the angels bore at Sinai. They wanted every individual to be able to choose an aspect of divine service that suited their personality, just as each angel executes a specific function. Right. So so just like to, to try to bring it all together, this this idea that back at Sinai, we saw, obviously, we saw all of these angels with their own flags and we're also taught, right, that each of us sort of heard and saw and experienced revelation a little bit differently. The way and that they needed to. The way that they needed to, the way that each of us is sort of uniquely experienced Learned. that, right? So along with that, there's like that visual signifier of the flag. And I just think it's, it's, it's nice to think about how like that experience then sort of like continues as they're wandering through the desert into this piece that seems completely disconnected from it, but that they were like carrying this idea of like, I want, I want my own flag to sort of illustrate and illuminate who I am in the world. And again, this idea of identity that like each one has their own, which is part of their family, which is part of their tribe, which is part of the community. Um, and that, that it's all connected both in terms of that individual experience that we each get to have at Sinai and the communal experience that we each get to have at Sinai as we continue to wander through the desert together ever forward. Shabbat. Very good. That was awesome. No, that's such a beautiful piece. And it's, it's, um, it's funny when I didn't connect it to Shavuot at all, even though it talks about revelation for some reason in my head, I was just like, okay, yeah, I guess angels fine. Um, but that's a really beautiful connection. Um, and thank you for bringing it. My favorite, this has nothing to do with the partial, my favorite part, my, (laughs) my favorite thing that you just brought up about Shavuot is that it's exactly the way that people should be engaging with Torah, which is the way that you want to experience Torah or the way that you learn best is the way that you should learn Torah, um, which is why I push you so hard to show things visually. Because if I can't understand the Torah that you are sharing, 
then what good is it that I'm studying Torah? Um, and that's how revelation was. Everybody received it and everybody learned it and everybody heard it the way that they needed to, to best understand it. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.